Hello, hunters, anglers, campers, and lovers of the outdoors. Fall is in the air, and we got a great podcast for you. For many of us, late September means hunting, but out in the Black Hills, the August rumble of the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally has been replaced by the rumble of 1,000 or more furry critters. We're going to go talk to a couple people who are intimately involved with the big event in Custer State Park. And remember, the South Dakota GFP podcast and blast is brought to you by you. Hunters and angler license dollars allow game fishing parks to do outreach such as this and a billion other things. Welcome, welcome to the latest installation of the South Dakota GFP Podcast and Blast. New name, I just named that myself. Today we're in uh, awesome Custer State Park, and I'm with a guy who might have the coolest job in the state, Chad Kramer. Chad Kramer looks probably more like his job than any other person in the world. Chad, <laughs> you are the bison herd manager for Custer State Park, right? Correct. That's yeah. the correct title. If, if I was going to pick out a bison herd manager out of a giant crowd, Chad Kramer would be the guy. If you've ever been to the Roundup and you've seen people riding horseback and chasing buffalo, I know, I guarantee you, you know who this guy is. So thanks for taking your time. I know this is a laid-back time of year and, and you don't have anything going on, but uh, thanks for squeezing me in here. Um, so gave, you gave me your title, Chad. What buffalo bison herd manager? What does that mean? Well... I mean, daily responsibilities, primary responsibilities is the herd management, overseeing in that. Um, I've been here almost 17 years, actually at Roundup, it'll be 17 years. And it's changed some over the course of that time, but primary is responsibility is anything to do with the herd, and depending on what time of the year, it, I, I've learned over the years and tell people my job truly does go by seasons, so... What uh, let's talk about the buffalo herd a little bit or a lot bit actually. What uh, how many buffalo we got? How many head of buffalo we got in Custer State Park right now? We'll be about twelve fifty to thirteen hundred this year, with depending on the calf crop. And that's that has been built up from the last few years. It has actually. When I initially when I first started, we were in because of a drought period we were in. We were downsizing the numbers, and we turned that around after. Oh, four, five, six years and started because we're a closed herd and we don't bring in any outside animals. Um, we have to grow all our replacements from within. So um, the one year in planning numbers, several months ahead of this time of year for Roundup, I realized it got to a point and I've developed a spreadsheet over time where I can plug in and put my numbers in and then project out a couple of years. But um, I realized we were so low on our breeding female side that in order to try and maintain a surplus auction around 200 head, it was going to be quite a balancing act. So to still have that number to sell, but yet keeping as many females as possible to increase our, our breeding herd. And it was, we decided it was either kind of a decision at the time I told my supervisor was we basically don't have an auction for two to three years or we spread it out over a five to six year period, which I knew that's the way we'd look at it and that's the way we went. Well, 
just between the sex ratio and the calf crop each year and then throwing another couple dry years in there we just haven't gotten it quite back up to the quote normal level so right. we're close we should be there this year now um next year will be our first full season like with the full breeding cow herd up to up to numbers sure. so what goes into that herd size decision is it range is it yeah, all your food. I mean. Yep. No, it's actually all of it. We uh, over the years they put together a program where we're monitoring range condition, and then in our resource plan we have so many animal units allotted to each species. So we actually our biggest users are the bison and the elk herd. Sure. Um, but deer, uh, pronghorn, and all that's included in that in that planning, and so <clears throat> we'll use that. And also we use precipitation data. So we have a weather station at the Wildlife Visitor Center, which is more of our range area, sure. um, that we've got monthly precip data from 1982, I believe, is when they started. So we'll use a two-year moving mean with that precip data and look at what in our water year runs October through September. So we'll look at that data and then determine using forage current forage condition kind of where we're going to project the numbers for next year and we don't stick exactly to it right but we have used it to make some decisions two to three times i would say where it it certainly assisted in making that decision on whether we're going to increase the herd or have to drop it a little and you know 2012 was real dry so the driest i've seen yet even out of that drought period initially so was just kind of a drop for that one season and then it came back so you know we've had years where it says just on the data we should be at 82 percent of herd normal herd size um what's the normal herd size nine nine hundred and sixty animals so I forget exactly what the animal units are, but number ahead, that's what the number ahead is. So, so you know, we don't stick exactly to we've got to be this many, but it's, it's I said, you're still use, making your best guesstimate because you're anticipating how much moisture you're going to get next year and what the right. growing condition is going to be. So, <laughs> so you use the data you got to try and do the best guess you can for sure. next season. Cool. So we got that uh, annual Buffalo Roundup coming up next week. No big deal. No no pressure on you. Or anything. <laughs> Before we get to that, let's talk about a year in the life of a buffalo. And I'm not going to use bison, even though I know that's the right term. <laughs> Everybody comes for the buffalo, right? Starting with the winter, when the snow starts flying, what's what's your focus? What are the critters doing? Well, this time of year when we get into you know fall and winter, um, actually is the busiest time. So beginning in early september when we're staging the herd for the roundup uh, the roundup event itself and then within the following month we're going to work the herd Um, we've changed that a couple different ways over the years and kind of depends on how the season is and and the calendar and such when we're handling and how we're handling um for, for the most part it's just one once a year the entire herd goes through once a year and then they're back out until the till the next season so after roundup working then we have the hunts that we do we have the non-trophy which are a meat type hunt those animals are sorted off at the roundup and held in a separate area nearby the corrals there on little over 2,000 acres right. um you know they're a half day hunt 
the hunter can come in we go out and guide them and pretty much out of that group they get to take their choice and and we'll field dress it bring it back to the corral for them and and send them on their way sure um so i've got that thrown in the middle and then we have our live auction which is in late november several changes to that process in the last three years that is has made it a little easier on both the animals and staff and then i go into the trophy hunts right at thanksgiving time for about five to six weeks guiding those and of course those are where we're looking for 10 year old or older bulls and it's we guide them it's a three-day hunt we get the majority of them done in two but it's locating them is the biggest issue that because those big old bulls they scatter over the whole park so They're up in the timber and up on the ridges and kind of, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, some of them you find in with the cow herd, but that's not real typical, occasionally we do, but usually they're off in bachelor groups or by themselves. And then after the first of the year doing that, we've got some other uh, sales that we've supported in the industry over the years, so Dakota Territory Buffalo Association, which is based out of Rapid City. We have our winter conference and sale up there. We've supported, uh, we've got a couple challenges the association put together over the years. We enter some calves into that and then attending our national conference. And then uh, when I get back from that, if we do have any of, over the years we've had some uh, sealed bid sales and then an internet sale we put together. We haven't sold any on that the last few years just because of market conditions. There hasn't been a big demand for it at the timing. So um, we'll see how, you know, always keeping an eye on the market and where things are at. That becomes popular sometimes. Right Right now it's not, so we're not doing that. But delivery of animals then, and then I kind of hit my office season where it's (laughs) catching up on all the record keeping, which we do have a database for the herd. So getting back through that and tidying that up and using that to help make decisions, planning for numbers and surplus sure. and hunts and everything coming up in the next year. Sure. So. Uh, I, something just popped into my head, and this is sort of off script, but uh, I, you know, I've known you since you started. Um, I think I was at the first roundup you were at, and and I heard a long time ago that the the buffalo herd in Custer State Park is self-sustaining meaning that the sale profits from the sale and and everything go right back into the herd is that fairly correct i would say it is you know we've never tracked it a hundred percent for total costs and labor and such but um you know in the time here in 2002 in the industry we had the market collapse Mm -hmm. Um, since then, what's happened is allowed the industry as a whole to rebuild, and we have a legitimate meat market floor to prices now. Sure. So since then, it's just been a steady climb, and actually we'll be going on about seven years where it's been pretty stable and steady. We have, and we've had some ups and downs a little bit, but nothing significant. And And the popularity of it now as a meat product has really proven its own place in a niche out there um so you know it's the last few years i forget my numbers last year i mean my program which includes hunts the live auction all the sales we were at just under seven hundred sixty-five thousand. wow last year just for the bison program right. so that varies you know by number of head and stuff we actually percentage wise 
from the year before we were down last year percentage-wise than the previous year, which was, it took a jump two years ago. Sure. It was kind of high. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it was visiting with other producers out there. In my experience of 26 years of raising them, it was kind of a market correction we really needed. Otherwise, a lot of folks I visited with out there, including myself, thought we are kind of, could be setting ourselves up for a crash again. Sure. But it's it's different. We haven't been like we have in the marketplace ever sure. before. So. Yeah. So let, uh, let's switch. Springtime rolls around. Uh, you finally get out of the office. It's calving season. Uh, what are you looking for in monitoring? I guess that it isn't like me being a kid and being out helping my dad pull calves, <laughs> you know, pull cows. Yeah. What, what are you looking for? What are you doing? What are you monitoring? You know, the biggest thing, and it's become quite a quite a deal with social media the last few years, is kind of a little contest on when the first right. calf is seen. And for the most part, over over the years we've had the very first calf seen or born within a week of the first of april usually into april but there has been a few years it's been into march but and sometimes we don't see it for till it's a week to 10 days old right. i estimate so but that's the very first one um you know we have had late calves i've had calf born before roundup overnight the night before the roundup <laughs> before but typically after that Oh, God, I bet over the years there hasn't been five or six that are past. Well, I, I don't think we've ever had any past the first of the year until April. So, sure. And it can happen because yeah. the bulls are out there, but just natural setting it doesn't because right. we're not supplementing at all. So, so it's watching, but it's kind of just monitoring. And we have, God, I bet 17 years, I think, here at the park, I've maybe only had to ever assist with five or six at the most um typically no <laughs> it, typically it's a first caver um right. if it's something that warrants having the vet out we will tranquilize them right. and do what we need to do with them in that but sometimes um they end up taking care of it on their own, and sometimes it's too late when we find them to give them assistance. But it's it's more springtime and cabin is more just responding to incidences that arise. So right. there's really not much we do. And, you know, they're free-ranging for the most part. If they're close to the corral, we could try to capture them. But if anything, we're going to tranquilize right. them and deal with it. So let's talk about talk about the summer a little bit and the focus uh, you know these are self-reliant critters and everything uh you know i've seen you a lot of times um you know talking with with visitors and and trying to do traffic control and like rotational grazing and stuff do you do any of that where you're trying to move them into different sections of the board we have done some for the most part we've before the legion lake fire we had one main interior fence um, and then the very south end of the park actually is fenced separate um, about a mile off the south boundary and all the way across east to west. And that's split into two different units. Um, but the main fence going northwest from the corral facility to, to horse camp, it dead ends into French Creek Canyon, a natural barrier. But um, we have the last five, six years done some deferring. Um, it had been done 25 to 30 years ago because primarily at that time and we also looked at doing it wasn't the main focus initially the first year but the warm season grasses back then had been grazed out 
primarily on the western side of the the range area for the herd so they deferred it for a few seasons during the warm season which is june to going into dormant um to let them warm season grasses reestablish and so along with some other decisions and wildlife management happening we decided to do that and we did that we kind of bounced it back and forth from what we call the east and west side for a couple of years um which since it hadn't been done in 20 plus years it kind of threw the herd for a loop because they kind of get habituated to knowing and that first year we deferred the west side i mean the Long Lame Johnny Road, northwest of the corral, they just hammered that bottom because they would, every couple of weeks at least, they'd be up and down that fence checking the gates. Right. And and we did have them, they can get around French Creek Canyon, <laughs> right. or some of them old cows kind of know it. So we did have, we did have some smaller groups get around it, and we have had years where they end up just tearing a hole in the fence and sure. get through, so... So, but we have done that um, the last five years, and it's something we kind of monitor. Now we're actually, because of the fire, looking at putting new fences in and, and re, reconfiguring that fence and rerouting it. So sure. um, it's something we do occasionally, but for the most part, the main body of the park north of that very south end unit, they, they're most of the time they're free to go where they want to. Sure. Uh, let's talk about uh, the Sturgis Rally a little bit because I was out here uh, a couple of years ago and we were doing the film and we were doing some stuff and and uh, I know you guys have your hands full when it comes to that many visitors and, and they're riding two wheel critter you know two wheel critters and they're not enclosed. Just talk about that a little bit in the rally and, and just when there's that many people and yeah, it's always interesting. It varies year to year, but uh, we've had some good stories and some good conversations and laughs with with the rally visitors out there each year but god i suppose we started what we actually call buffalo or bison patrol and mostly my staff that helps me with the program that does it we get a few other folks depending on schedule but you know now it's a 10-day period for the most right. part almost two weeks so and but we have the main the main rally week where we basically, some of us sit on horses out there with it. Depend, it just depends where the herd's at. If they're along the wildlife loop or close, we just kind of keep sit there and keep an eye all day. And you know, I say basically babysit the bikers right. <laughs> so that yeah. they stay where they need to be. You know, now with everybody carrying a phone and getting a camera in their pocket right there, and with that, they just think they need to get closer to get that. You know, and one thing when the selfie movement started, I really initially <laughs> thought, oh, God, here we go. And we've had a few incidences of that, yeah. but not as much as I've expected over the years. Yeah. But, you know, you just, it's nice to be out there, visit with the visitors, educate them about right. the animal, what the, you know, I, I joke about it when people get talking around that time and asking about it. They said, uh, you know, I get bikers that'll pull up and, They'll start asking a few questions. I suppose you're here to keep us from walking out there to pet one or ride one or whatever. And I said, well, you know, we'll just educate. But if you're going to do it, oh, I want to go pet it. I said, just let me get my camera out yeah, first. Exactly. You know, so kind of we get a good laugh out yeah. of that and stuff. But but it is, you know, we get, uh, oh, probably five, six years ago, had part of my crew out there. And I got there later in the day. And one gentleman was sitting on the tailgate there. And everything was everybody was minding their own business the 
bison were kind of bedded down, you know, 20 yards off the road. Uh, they started getting up, grazing a little bit around, and traffic was flowing. Nice people were stopping, getting their pictures, everything going good. And then we're sitting there talking, and I saw one gentleman. The herd had gotten up and started grazing a little closer. But I tell people I usually watch the bison right. more than watching the people because I can kind of just experience, tell what they're kind of thinking. But I had a gentleman that was... Uh, kind of walking we were near a big pull-off and he had parked closer to us his group and then there was a cow oh maybe 40 yards away that had gotten relatively close to the road and had her calf with her well he was going to march over there and take this picture and he was looking at his phone trying to get things up while he was walking and I just happened to look up and I saw this cow all of a sudden she's high-headed and got her ears snapped on him and I'm like all right, she's thinking about coming, and I jumped off the tailgate and yelled. Of course, it was loud, so he didn't hear me. Um, but I just was yelling, sir, sir, and his buddies who were standing there, and they said, you know, it's Fred or whatever. And I run up to him while the cow, she she made a couple jumps at him, and he was, I don't know, 20, 15, 20 yards away, I'd say, maybe even a little further, but... She was right. zeroed in on yeah. him, and I seen that, and she made a couple hops at him before I got to him and, you know, grabbed him on the shoulder and said, sir, you're just too close. You got to stay closer to some cover, and and uh, it was kind of funny because he got a little bit snotty with me, but uh, he didn't have a clue. He never right. saw it happen. I mean, if she'd have wanted to eat his lunch she'd have had him right. and i'm sure he heard about it from his buddies because they were watching the whole thing yeah. and they got going but but lots of oh i forgot more stories than i remember yeah. until we get talking about <laughs> yeah. it this is a little bit off script too but you you really need to learn how to read these critters it is and there's no school for it it's like being shot out of a cannon for the first time i mean somebody can tell you how to do it but but you're dealing with it every day i mean that learning curve you've when you came on in 2001, I mean, okay, here you go. Um, yeah. But you'd worked buffalo before that, right? Yeah. I mean, yep. But they're just a different critter. I mean, they, they have different mannerisms. And from being around you and being around camera crews and being up close, and, uh, you know, I've learned when you say, uh, you know, better get back in that pickup, you know, I'm not the last guy in the pocket <laughs> yeah. to pick up. I mean, how do you just pick that up? Just being around them and, and being really observant i would guess i mean it it is you know it's just experience and there's a lot of producers out there that you know are in the same place i'm at and it's just time and experience and, and realizing that i mean yeah coming to the park i was managed a couple of private ranches before i was here and and i've had animals myself since well 26 years so it's just working with them but noticing little stuff i mean i've had staff members here over the years and and uh, there's visitors watching that roundup when we're working stuff. I mean, yeah, the Buffalo Whisperer deal comes out. Right. But it's it's just reading their body language. Everything from just the way they're they're looking, your, their eyes. You know, even I can tell in their eyes when they're relaxed or when they're concerned. Yeah. Um, watching their ears. Of course, the tail is the big indicator, the easiest that you tell and... And, you know, everybody say when the tail's up, one of two things, charge or discharge, which is true. 
but there's different degrees you know i've i've learned just in observing and working with them over the years and listening to other producers you know if they're completely at rest that tail's going to be flat against their hind end if they're not just agitated but if they're curious they'll raise that you'll see a little daylight underneath it and then the more concerned that they become the higher it'll go it's just discerning whether they're just curious or if they are agitated or getting towards aggressive um that's just experience of working with them and i mean i've had staff here that you know watches me and they're just like how do you do that how do you know and i said it's just experience working with them but learning that i mean there's you know i heard from another producer one time doing a presentation just watching their feet what they're thinking uh and he had some photos that he was doing how they position just the uh the way they will tip their feet out and it was interesting after he brought it up and showed us pictures of it it's like well yeah i mean i i get that i just never noticed that find a detail on it before but if they're curious you're walking up and this was in a pen situation where he walked up to a young bull and he said you know he had his feet turned out probably uh, close to a 45 degree all four of them and as athletic as bison are he says you know is that good bad and of course we got a lot of different answers from the group mostly producers but when he showed the next one, he said, you know, he was just positioning so that he could spin off any corner, flee. That's what he was doing. And that's one, I think, you know, like beef cattle, large animals do it also. But bison just tend to be overall a lot more athletic and, and sure. agile. And that's all he was doing. And it's just little things like that you start to learn. And and uh, you hear others, you right. know, that they observed and stuff. So... Cool. That, and by the way, phone ringing, that's happened, I think, in every one of these I've ever done. So dogs barking. Um, so now we're coming up on the roundup next week. Um, what people see uh, at the day of the roundup is just kind of the culmination of it. When when are you starting to deal with these critters? As far as finding them and kind of positioning them to get them to where you can handle them on the last day? Well, late August, um, early September, we'll kind of start seeing where the majority of them are grazing or where they're scattered out to. And then usually in early September sometime is when we'll kind of stage them to the south end. So, And some days they're standing right at the gate. Had somebody this morning that was didn't really know how it worked and asked about, you know, how do, the, how do you get them close to the corral and that. We do defer that very south end, usually from mid-June at the latest on. So there's fresh grazing, fresh right. grass down there that hasn't been grazed. And the old lead cows, they kind of know that. Sure. They get yeah. habituated to it. So there's been some years they're literally standing at the gate or they'll run that fence, checking gates to see yep. if it's open before we open them up sure. and move them down there. Um so they kind of know those lead cows, and that's what I've learned over the years, too. As I, the first few years of being here, I kind of learned they have travel routes through train sure. that they yeah. like to use. Um, initially, we we decided we wanted to take them this way because it was the shortest between point A and B, right. and they'd fight us in some spots. And the longer I was here, after a couple of years, I realized, well, they got a route over here, and yeah, it's an extra mile or two. But it's not near the fight right. to just yeah, let them go. So it's kind of just 
keeping right. an eye on them, keeping them bunched up somewhat and going the direction you want. Sure. And I've learned, too, over the time of being here, you know what? If we got them all bunched up and started and quit four or five miles away, they're probably going to be there within a couple of days. Sure. Anyway, so so that that pre roundup where you're really starting to get cons- you know starting to get serious about moving them, getting them in the right place. How many horses, horseback riders? I, you don't really use rigs that much or vehicles that much. No, that we've point. got a few, and we kind of keep that riders? just to a group of staff. So yep. we'll have ten to. 20 folks that come and help us and they say there's been years they've been standing at the gate right um for open the gate they'd be through there they're within a mile or so right. north of the corral and i have had a few years where they've actually been almost all the way up iron mountain on the other end of the park yeah. and depending on how warm it is and stuff we've taken them all the way or we've taken them half the way and let them go because they've gotten pretty pretty hot and tired and and like i say they usually even on those years they'll be down a few miles closer by the next day so i know the one year that i i helped a little bit with that pre-roundup on horseback i I know you were more worried about me getting lost or getting run over and i can ride horse but i can't ride horse like that so i was i was about uh i was about shot so let's talk about the the day of the roundup or you know when, when you start getting volunteers and riders what how do, how do those riders get involved how do you get picked is there criteria is there qualifications yeah that whole process uh and how, have, how much has that grown since you've been here you know it hasn't as far as numbers we do a draw so we we try to we keep it at 60 riders total um we have three teams the red, white, and blue team we split up to on roundup day. Um, we have what we call our core team, which is experienced staff and some other um, volunteers that have helped. Some of them have helped longer than I've been here. So they have the experience on the terrain and the animals. Um, then we have our draw rider list, which we do a drawing for 20 to 25 public riders to come help each year. Um, we allow two to an envelope on that. They can travel in in groups. Uh, they can they can apply after they're successful. They got to wait three years before they can apply again. Have had a few people over the years. I've been here. They've been here three, maybe even a couple have been here four times now. So putting in, but the number of applicants. So we have an application they fill out for that. Mm-hmm. Just kind of questioning what their experience is as far as horseback and riding and and that um so we'll do the drawing for that um and then give them information we do reserve some of the sites at french creek horse camp for them to camp at if they like or there's there's uh other horse camps in the area they can stay at um and the way it's evolved to now is we those riders have to be at an orientation briefing the day before so thursday afternoon at one we meet at the corrals have that orientation which it'll take an hour hour and a half we'll sit in the grandstands there and kind of go through and show we have some maps we show them what the what the uh, route is uh introduce them to their team leaders they'll get assigned to their team we try to pair up, oh, the other group I forgot to mention is our, we have a invited or a guest group, so so that'll come. And that varies, oh, it's been anywhere from maybe five or so up to 15, 20, but in that 
in that number. But uh, we'll do that briefing on Thursday afternoon for about an hour, show them what our objectives are, what the route is, get them on their team. And then we actually go out, everybody involved, and do an orientation ride. So we aren't doing any moving, but everybody kind of goes to their our main push on roundup day we kind of have three stages to it so we start back at the west fence which is about a mile west of the corral depending usually the herd is out in that area typically or majority of it each team has a geographical area they're kind of responsible for and the main objective is to just keep a line with all the team as we go and go for our gates and our trap so um We've done pretty good. There's early on when I first started, we had a couple of years where line got apart and we had breakbacks. And the worst it's ever been was I'd say one year. Um, we probably about good 45 minutes. We were just made the decision to go back to the fence and start, start all over again. Yeah, so I remember that one. I think it took us from the time we said go the first time to the time we shut the gates on the trap. It took us pretty close about three hours. Yeah, I remember that when I was here for that. The last several years, you know, an hour, a little more than an hour, we actually have them closed in the gates. But we've changed where we used to go those stages across Red Valley. Then we'd regroup and the teams have to kind of shuffle. Um, the last four to five years now, we've kind of kept where as long as we aren't having any issues with incidences or somebody falling behind, you know, and that we just kind of keep the pressure on them, keep them together and swing them basically and go past the south booing and into the trap. And of course, once we're in the trap, as soon as the horses and the vehicles are in there, we shut the gates, then we're ready for that last push where we actually put them up close to the corral. Right. What's uh, what's it take to have a good buffalo moving horse? Not every horse can do it. Not everyone, you know. Um, it's been interesting over the years seeing how horses, and we've had some mules, how they react. Literally, some of them, you could say, freak out. They see that they haven't seen one before, or it's even the smell. Smell. Just at a distance, even looking at them, you know, they have a different silhouette um, noticed. And then other ones that, it's no big deal they could care less so i've also seen that with the donkeys over the years i've seen horses that have never seen donkeys before (laughs) and they see them donkeys and they think what is that they're gonna eat them so but you know in our briefing we go through all that kind of stuff and the thing i've learned over the years here and we've had it a few times where i've had ride draw riders um that actually on roundup morning will bow out because their horse or their mount has acted like they've never acted before and it, a lot of it is the excitement of it i mean my horse that i ride now oh golly i've been riding him for almost 15 years good 10 years just that's he's the only one i've rode the last 10 but he gets all fired up um he knows what's coming he knows for him it went from uh, it took till about his fifth or sixth year when he finally the light clicked on and he was like, oh, right. we're chasing these things. You know, I didn't have to work to keep him in there. Right. Well, he likes to run, and it went pretty quick from then. It went from chase to a race. Right. So if I give him the reins, he'll actually yeah. beat him to where we're going or yeah. try. But So now it's holding him back. But, I mean, lots of times by the time we get out to where we initially start, he'll be just all lathered up, and everybody's like, geez, your horse. And I said, he's ready to go. Yeah, so the mother horses pick up on that excitement sure. and that. 
And so we have had a few that uh, I had a gentleman, uh, oh, it's probably been six or seven years ago that came roundup morning. He did the orientation ride the day before and stuff. Wasn't having any issues that morning. He got there and we did the briefing and he came up and he says, you know, he was, he played polo with him. He said he rode four days a week and in the summertime they're playing polo a few times wow. a week and he says he's acting like he never has before right you know so i don't think i'm gonna stick right. this out right. you know and and that's what we want we don't want anybody to get hurt that's the last thing we want um i haven't ever had to tell anybody yet that no you can't do this right. from what i've seen um had some people ask and give them you know pointers on what they should try and do but we have had a few that have had a group like graciously bowed out of sure. it and that's and that's, that's what we want right. yeah you know i never thought of it but it, you were talking about your horse and i you know i and for as many roundups as i've been through with tourism and, and with game fish i mean i'd like it to, to my hunting dogs you know they start you know you put out your stuff you know the night before oh and, yeah and heck even my nine-year-old dog last week where i was getting ready to hunt she saw the stuff, and at 3.30 in the morning, man, she was on my face, like, <laughs> yeah. let's go, let's go, let's go. And yeah. like, I haven't seen this from you for, oh, since hunting season. You know, you've been lazy and, you know, just training all summer, but now you're ready to go. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting stuff. And, it, it, you know, we talk about the different teams and stuff, and, and, and uh, you know, you got the red, white, and blue, and everybody's kind of, you know, they're wearing the bandanas, and everybody's got their own specific duties. But, you know, I don't know if this was... 10, 12 years ago, I used to be the guy that was taking that invite group out and remember we'd be up on yeah. the ridge and I was so proud. Uh, I finally got a radio, right? So, you know, I'm listening to everything and I'm telling people, okay, here they are. And we're pointing them out. We're way up on the ridge. And then all of a sudden I hear, Hall, this is Kramer. And I'm like, oh boy, he's talking to me. Hall, this is Kramer. Hey, what's going on? Uh, you got some buffalo coming up at you. And I just was like, okay. <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to point out any names. We had a big old boy from Texas that was a guest that he took off. You remember this? He took off after these buffalo, and I took off after him, and he ended up running into a tree. You remember that? I don't remember that one. Yeah, it was probably, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, I, we'll talk about it off, off camera. He ended up running into a tree, and then I came back, and I thought maybe I might have lost my job. but. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't chasing buffalo. I was chasing somebody on a horse. So. <laughs> but, yeah, I just remember being so excited about getting the radio and then going, uh-oh, my name is being called on the radio. I either really screwed something up or I'm about to screw something <laughs> up. So, Got any really tense moments or anything that comes to mind when you, you're you in the heat of things? I mean... As far as right on Roundup right. moving them and that? Yeah. yeah, there's been a number of them, and it's usually with their mount not acting like right. they have i mean kind of one of the classic always comes to mind is we had a had a lady from texas when you're actually riding a very nice mule um but he you know and she said after things started happening she said that you know she, they throw beginners on he'd been around buffalo and yeah. that she'd done large trail ride you know few hundred people horses and sure. trail rides and such but he just picked up on that excitement and he just wanted to run and it was ended up being more than she could handle and he did end up getting loose um she tried to she realized she needed to get off and she stepped off and tried to hold him back and it was just initially right from the very go you know okay let's right. go move him so within a couple hundred yards she knew that 
it was more than she could handle. Right. So she stepped off him and had him circling, I guess. And I wasn't right down in that area at the time, but talking to some other core riders told me about it. They said he circled her three, four times, and then he was just wanting to go, and all of a sudden away he went. He just decided he was right. going, even though she had a hold of the reins. And uh, he took off, and the next call I got was the gray mules in the middle of the herd. <laughs> you know, and I'm up on top oh, of Hay Flats, man. and I just said, he's on his own right. for now. But the herd literally parted, and he ran into the middle of them and then continued to run through them. Oh, and got out in front of them, and I could kind of, because of the timber and they were getting into movie draw, I could see him working through it while I came down the ridge, and on the east end of movie draw, they're right near Red Valley right. intersection. Yeah. He finally got out ahead of them a ways, and he stopped right in the middle of the loop road, and he, was, <laughs> he had these long split reins, so... He had stepped on the reins and had cut his mouth and stuff oh. a little bit, but I, I come sliding up there and grabbed him, and the herd, the front of the herd literally was less than 100 yards behind. Oh. I grabbed him and got him out of the way across the creek and then ended up tying him short to a tree. <laughs> and she had, he had ended up rolling her when he left, so she jumped in and picked up with one of the staff and... Right. You know, let them know where where the mule was tied to and stuff. And she feel, really felt down because she'd come a long ways right. to do it. But you know, the last thing we want is somebody to get hurt. And yeah. and we've had uh, God, that's that's the biggest one. I mean, there's been a number of them over the years, and especially when the one year that we started back to the fence, I think was my second or maybe probably third year that got real western that year because once we lost our line and they found between it and the timber and terrain and stuff uh we had buffalo and riders going every direction and we just finally after five or ten minutes said okay everybody all right (laughs) back to the fence (laughs) we'll let the herd settle down where they're at get behind them again we're just going to start all over i think i i recall i might have been with the park superintendent that year in a vehicle in a rack truck and we were already back at the fence at that yeah point. i mean yeah yeah it just fell apart and that's the worst or i guess you could say worst right. year we've had but you know i've said to i don't ever time it because it could jinx it but i have looked you know at the watch from when we've said okay let's go and when we've actually got the gates shut and we've changed and it depends you know on the year and the the lead cows and one other thing i was going to mention was you know people if there are riders that have close calls or issues with their horse and stuff after the fact in a day or two i'll get other friends and riders that help and say oh did you see so-and-so had trouble with their horse and i said you know unless it's right in front of me i don't i'm i'm what I watch is the whole herd dynamic. Right. So where I've got holes, where my team members are, if we're keeping people spaced pretty evenly, right. or where trucks are at, where we're at along the route, the terrain, because I've kind of learned areas they'll pressure to try and sneak away if we don't have sure. somebody there. So that's what I'm kind of watching is that whole dynamic, sure. what the herd's doing, and and watching for lead cows that are either looking if we're close and just walking they're looking for a gap and i've seen it happen where all of a sudden okay this group of riders up in front you know if that certain gap gets 50 100 yards or whatever all of a sudden there's one she'll try to make a make a bust for it so 
that's kind of what I'm watching on that day. Of course, if somebody's out where they're not supposed to be, we'll let them know on that or oh, try yeah. to get them. Oh. So, so that's kind of what I'm I'm always watching for on that day. So, mm-hmm. just to try and hold it together. Right. So once we got the buffalo in the corrals, what's what's going on? How many people do we got typically working those buffalo, and what are they doing? Um, we'll do the group that afternoon after roundup. Show mm-hmm. show the visitors, you know, what we're doing. Um, and then, like I say, it's varied year to year, whether we do it the following week or we've actually held them about a month, a few years too, and worked them later. But what we're doing, it'll, it takes about a couple dozen staff to man all the positions mm-hmm. and gates and such in there. And then our crew at the chute that's actually hands-on, whether right. it's uh, taking genetic samples or our veterinarian pregnancy testing, you know, a uh, couple of us actually physically running the hydraulic squeeze chute. But it'll take upwards of about two dozen people to get that sure. done. And then if we're sorting off, depending on the day, we're sorting the surplus, the sale animals off and pinning them. Sure. Um, that's changed a little bit because three years ago we went to the video format for the auction. Mm-hmm. So I'm um, actually AR penning them as we work them so that we can get some video and photos of them immediately following. So we have that available to post online and let buyers, potential buyers, look at those. Sure. And along with the data we collect, weights and pregnancy status right. and such. So, so it's changed a little bit. It takes a little, few more people in that regards. Um, but it's primary for herd management. Like I say, it's, it's the one time a year we handle them, do a health check, um we'll we have them all individually id'd we have a database we track weights ear tags or uh we will ear tag the sale ones sale ones yep i do have there's a small group well it varies it's varied anywhere from about 50 to 75 head but um 16 years ago we started tracking some for a family social study that we're kind of watching and previous to that, we used to wean all the calves, um, at least for a four to six week period. We discontinued doing that. So the only thing now that we wean is the calves that we sell. Okay. So sure. the calves, the rest of the herd calves go right back out with the cow herd and we let the cow naturally wean them. Sure. And what we had before was our herd structure was based on age cohorts because Weaning that calf even for four to six weeks breaks that social bond with the mother. And it's more so on the, the female, the matriarch side. So we started, we allowed the the family structure to reestablish. And so I've got some that we've ID'd over the years and we'll put an ear tag in. And so I know, you know, that brown, we started out the first couple of years with red tags until I found some brown ones mm-hmm. that weren't as noticeable. So sure. I've got a few red tags out there yet, um, but most of them are brown colored now. And and so I know, you know, brown 50 is the daughter or granddaughter of brown 30 sure. and stuff right. like that. And we've kind of tracked and tracked that just to see how that structure is reestablished. Right. So, and we start getting upwards and too many numbers. I'll look back to and we basically want the female calves, the bulls we don't care for. So, um, you know, I've got, I haven't looked at the data in a while, but I'd say I've got three to four cows out there that have probably five plus female offspring that have remained in the herd oh, wow. and had 
their mm-hmm. offspring now too. So mm-hmm. just kind of tracking that. So right, and you're branding, right? Yep, we brand the calves with the year that they're born. They get a number. So this right. year they'll get an eight, and then a nest below it on the uh, left hip. Sure. Or excuse me, right hip. Right. Um, and that's just for age. That's the registered state brand for Custer Park. So right. Um, you know, the history of the buffalo in South Dakota is pretty pretty iconic. You know, Scotty Phillips and, and, and uh, you know, the Custer State Park herd and the Wind Cave herd and just that history. What about the genetics of, of this herd? I mean, what makes it so special? Is it, uh, I mean, it was one of the last kind of strongholds of the buffalo or kind of came... It was, somewhere. yep. The, origin, the original 26 animals, or 36 animals, excuse me, came from uh, the Scotty Phillips herd estate in 1914. And at that time, the state was was settling out. The state ended up buying them, bringing them back. Um, the origins of those animals came from the Fred Dupree herd, which was up on the South Dakota North Dakota right. border. So, um, which originated from some wild calves that were caught in the late eighteen eighties and nineties. So, um, we do have you know one of the most genetically diverse herds and. With our auction and surplus, I mean, we have the longest annual production sale, basically, of bison in the world. So, beginning in 1966. So, um, there's that long history, and at the time, until the last, I'd say, 20 to 25 years, um, the park auction, because of the time of season, it's relatively early in the... uh, you could say buffalo sale season. Mm-hmm. Um, over the years, the park sale pretty much has set the market price for the year. Um, after the collapse in 02 for several years, I saw where it didn't influence it as much because it really collapsed and right. folks took what they could get for them. So that has influenced what the buffalo market is over the years. So mm-hmm. I've seen that, like I say, change a little bit more and it is now i mean when i got started i know when i first got interested in the animals and you'd ask existing producers which there wasn't near as many of this is in the 19 early 1990s lots of people direct you to the park you know it was one of the largest herds in the country there was a few private herds out there larger but um now there's a number of larger herds because of the popularity but but uh, they'd send you to the park, and and most people there wouldn't be any that really were sold until after the park sale, and that's what people said, you know, huh. this is what I'd like for them. So, right. so it's cool. it's changed a little because of our meat market mm-hmm. in the industry now. I mean, there is that floor to it. So, right. so is that primarily the people that come to the R that are that are buying from Custer State Park, are they primarily using those for slaughter or are they taking them to their herds for breeding or it really depends on the current market. In the last five to six years it's been a combination of both. Okay. Yep, yep. There's been and that's one reason the the price is at the level where it's at and it's kinda remained fairly steady at it is because we're at a level now on the meat end of it where it's profitable for producers that sure. are on that side and also on the cow calf side so there's been an expansion for five years mm-hmm. at least um mm-hmm. on the breeding side of it and i have seen a new interest in people getting into it sure in the last 
five years, probably three in particular. I mean, I've, I'm visiting with a, a few gentlemen right now that are looking to get in anywhere from 20 to, you know, 100 head getting into it. And they're, a lot of them don't have an egg background. Right. So they're looking. And that's been one good thing about this industry is it's small enough. And, you know, most of the people that are there and they don't want to see new producers make the mistakes that they sure. made. Right. So oh, that's great. Um, I've had that over the years being with the park and also with uh, associations and stuff that new people get in after a year or two. They're like, you know, everybody's so helpful to right. provide information yeah. and My assistance and help. <laughs> so, which you don't find in a yeah. lot of business, but it's, yeah, we, we want to see the animal succeed and we want to see producers right. succeed to see it expanding yeah really cool so we're going to shift gears here a little bit and talk about a little bit about range management but briefly about the fire um that we had uh and i know one of your duties is is you know being a lead dog and when when there's a fire you're you're out on the line with a lot of the employees here how did you know i, I know we lost some some critters you know in the burrows were probably the lead story there and and for well you know for for good reason but those buffalo i mean did they just they smell it and they're going the wind's blowing and they're going innately or just within them they're going we're going this way because the wind's coming this way and i can smell danger or you know it had been interesting to see during the daylight what they actually did because talking to one of the fire um fmo division bosses out there the next day he said before sundown that day they were a few miles north of, he said several hundred so i think a majority of the herd they were a couple miles north of the crowds there but they were kind of heading southeast and they found them the next morning they were about a mile north of that area mm-hmm. so knowing the area that they were at and we ended up with about 10 animals impacted that right. we had to call because of their burns or there was a couple because i issues they were going blind from the heat and smoke sure. and that but i don't know i've had a lot of people ask you know what how did how did they get by and around it right. and there is a prairie dog town way out on the fence in that area not huge that would have provided some from watching the fire that night and knowing the terrain where there were some prairie dog towns mm-hmm. that hit i mean it definitely the flames you know laid down and stuff but with that wind it did it did burn across it, even sure. though the grass was only three inches tall right. or less, um, I noticed. But but it definitely, the flame went down and would provide a hole in the in the wall of flame. But I don't know. You know, I've had some other people ask, and one theory that came to mind was if they were in an area where, you know, there was a flame length five to ten feet tall, which there was during the fire... You know, if they decided to run through it, the first ones would be impacted by the flames. But if just the traffic through the flames is going to knock it down, right. and I mean, basically, I said, you know, it'd create a black gate in this wall of wow. flame. I don't know. That's one theory I've thought of. I don't know if that's what happened and how that, how it all came to be. It would have been interesting. I visited with some other producers in kansas and oklahoma that were involved in them fires a few years ago and they did see the one one did see a group smaller group of animals go stand in a prairie dog town in the smoke 
you know, as the fire burned around them and stuff. So, wow. I don't know. It'd be interesting to know how they reacted, but because it was at nighttime, I don't know for sure. Huh. That might be the first. I've known you 20 years. That might be the first Buffalo-related question I almost stumped you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, going on about the fire, I know you live close by, and your ranch was affected, too. You guys bounced back pretty good. I mean... We did actually out of anybody, any livestock producer out there affected our personal herd. And we leased, we leased some property just to the east of the park. We were impacted the greatest out of anybody. We, because of their injuries and that, we basically almost called 50% of them. Um, my cow herd that I had, we had some yearlings, you know, out there also. But the cow herd, my core cow herd, I went from 34 head of cows to having six left. Oh. So it impacted us quite a bit um you know and that's one of the questions we were just talking about how they reacted i didn't i wasn't out there because in the fire training i've done i wasn't going to go put myself in that position um not knowing but same similar terrain same type of fuel you know grasses and that um the next morning when i went out to I didn't know if I'd have them laying dead or if they'd even be there. I mean, the right. one side we have barbed wire fence on it, which they easily could have ran through and got out of. They didn't. Um, so I had no idea what I was going to find that next morning. But they all were in the pasture. Um, some burnt pretty severe that we ended up having to euthanize. Took us total to catch them all five days. Um to get them all corralled and, and move to a neighboring ranch, which I'm good friends with and very appreciative because right. they dropped everything for four to five days and helped me catch them and transport them and then work them, get them through. And mm-hmm. we had a local veterinarian that we used come and treat them and, and that we initially euthanized 11 of them because of their injuries right, right. away. So um, primarily burned some of them were, we had, four of them i think because of eyes they were going blind um but we're bouncing back from that and and hoping to buy animals this fall and right. that and expand back to it so i uh I bet between your home and here you're probably pretty good at building fence again oh yeah that skill is sharp yeah but i gotta give credit to my crew um all the staff actually after the fire here in the park because i was dealing for a week or better with my own herd mm. and then getting back to the park and of course we corralled the herd after the fire right. in the park here which then it was a matter of getting enough hay we had some on hand but yep. right away we had to find source some and get it trucked in and that mm. and then it was daily feeding you know and right. and so i got to give the staff here and the crew um most of the credit for all of that it was kind of my position was more getting what we needed to provide the care and keep right. everybody get, get moving and day. supplies for fencing and that right. i mean we had some on hand but Not immediately we had to to order more and, right. and then of course it's mid-december which the following weekend after the fire it turned cold yeah and we got our first snow um so from that point out it got kind of nasty out there to be fencing that time of year and frozen ground and everything else and some pretty rough terrain i mean we lost about four and a half miles we had four and a half miles of boundary fence impacted and i would say about two miles of it was literally flat on the ground and a lot of that was in some pretty rough terrain so um we had staff you know 
GFP staff from around the state come out for a few weeks and bring equipment and people to help get that right. boundary secured so we could turn the herd. But it took it took a couple months before right. we got to that point. And then uh, daily, I mean, we were feeding about 16 to 18 round bales a day <laughs> to the herd. And the trap fence that we had was about a quarter section, and we had to get that secured at first the first right. day or two to be able to hold them. Right. But, uh, of course, there wasn't any forage left for the most no. part in that area, so we were feeding them. And they got pretty habituated within a week or two of that, and so as soon as the first truckload with two bales came out and then the whole herd seen it they're <laughs> yeah. all migrating to that area and here right. they here they'd all come so right. so that's the first time that i know of in the history of the park where we've actually supplemented you know the the entire herd entire that herd. way so wow um that's yeah that's pretty amazing um i'm just listening now i kind of lost my train of thought that's the first <laughs> time that you stumped me now um that that is I, I think that's one of those things that when that when that happened and, and you see the 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 response that we've got on on social media and people just you know coming out of the woodworks and where can we help you know not only the park but yeah. guys like you and, and your neighbors that were affected I mean my my personal phone was ringing off the hook my work phone which you know the number isn't that easily found yeah I mean it was just ringing and it was just like oh you know okay we need to figure this out um you know that that goes to to not only I mean you know South Dakota's helped neighbors, but these people were from all over the world, and it, it really goes to the advocacy that and the power of this park when people come here. I mean, it, it's a pretty damn special place, and it and, is. And it's just people, you know, I was there twenty years ago, and yep. and what can we do to help? And it, it was just like we're game fishing parks, you know, I mean, nobody's always you know happy with us on you know maybe yeah. on the park side, but on the game fish side, you know. We're not used to taking these calls, so that was that was pretty cool. So yeah, well, I know you got a ton of stuff to do. Um, I appreciate you know giving me an hour. Um, gotta get you back in the saddle. Are you using a whip again this year? Same whip that you've always kind of had. Or, oh yeah, yep. Where'd that whip come from, by the way? I'm oh, that. the one I've got right now. I've used the last several years or ten years or more. Actually, found uh, uh, had a gentleman. I can't remember. He's from. Georgia, I believe, that um, makes their nylon stock whip right. is what they are. But, but yeah, I found a few sources over the years. Right. But uh, Learned a lot about whips right. since I've been here, too. So. <laughs> good good stuff, Kramer. I appreciate it. Chad Kramer, uh, Bison Herd Manager. I'll use Buffalo Herd Manager. Uh, next week, or actually at the uh, end, end of the month, what's the actual date of the roundup? 28th. 28th. Friday, September 28th. Um, it's it's on a bucket list if you haven't seen it uh come out to the park come early get in line um spend the day park spend the day it, it is worth it i've i've seen it probably 15 times and every time i'm here i, I just get blown away but you i guarantee you you'll be able to put the the face with the voice um he'll be out there leading leading the charge he looks like a buffalo cowboy so kramer <laughs> i appreciate it thanks for your time please say hi to your family hey my pleasure Hi, this is Thea Miller-Ryan at the Outdoor Campus. 
I had a little trouble getting to work this morning. I drive a little tiny Prius C, and uh, I know that sounds kind of granola-y, but uh, it's a little bit too low to get into the park today because we are flooded. Flooding means a lot of things for us out here. It means that we have to cancel a few classes because the ground gets really saturated. And it also means that there's a lot of water in the park. And so um, we're either really quiet because there's nobody coming in here or really busy because everybody wants to come and see the flooding. So we've got a lot of bridges underwater and a lot of our playscape is underwater. The building, luckily, it doesn't get any water in it. Yay. Um, but it's not the same the same can't be said for the sheds that are outside. So Sandy Richter, who is our naturalist here, she and I put on a pair of boots this morning and uh, went outside and checked it out. And I have Sandy with me here because we saw some really neat things that are nature-y that have to do with flooding. Hey, Sandy. Hello. Hey. Um, you know, one of the coolest things I saw when I was out there is there's so many hawks flying over. Um, I know that we noticed it and talked about it, but Tell our listeners about why there were so many hawks. So when we have that much rain, um, a lot of the animals who have their homes on lower levels, um, beings either in the grassy areas or in in, um, holes underground, um, those areas got flooded as well. And so those animals are kind of a little stranded. Um, and left without a home, they are, are hanging out in uncharted area, um, wet and cold and, and just kind of miserable, which is a perfect time for a hawk to dive in for some lunch. So it's almost like a hawk buffet, isn't it? Just about. Yeah. It was really interesting to see that many hawks out and about. And then as we were walking around outside, um, stomping through a few puddles. Sandy had on deeper or bigger boots, um, the ones that go up higher. The waders. I, the waders, yeah. And then I did so she could go a little further out into the water. Um, while we were walking around out there, um, both of us looked down because we saw stuff moving in the water. And uh, there were worms everywhere. That is like a fisherman's dream come true. I remember we'd go out and look in the puddles when I was a kid and catch uh, night crawlers. My neighbor would pay me a penny a night crawler so he could go fishing. Um, but tell us a little bit, give us a little story about the night crawlers that we saw out there this morning. What were they doing and how did they survive? So it almost looked like the, the worms were kind of swimming in the the water today and we were probably walking through probably six or eight inch um, water over by the nature playscape and I saw this worm going down the trail. Um, I was able to pick it up and notice that it had a lot of mucus on its skin. Um, Usually when you think of worms in water you think of drowning worms Um, but I believe that the mucus on the skin helped protect him um, so that he didn't um, drown so to speak until he could get to higher ground. That is cool. Now, when I saw Sandy pick up the worm, this big string of slimy, snotty, gross (laughs) came off it, which made me go, ooh, and it made Sandy go, cool. (laughs) So uh, we did decide to rescue the worm, just in case any of you are worried that we are um, not nice people. We we did put it um, in the raised flower bed, right? Correct. So it's up on higher ground. On higher ground. But there are a lot of worms out here. Anybody who has a... A pair of waders and wants to get some worms for their fishing this weekend, this is a great place to come. 
However, we're not recommending people come out here with little kids right now. Um, the waters are receding. They are going down. And the city of Sioux Falls is working really hard to help us pump the water out of the park. But we've got a lot of overflow. And the overflow that comes into our park goes into the Oxbow, which used to be a part of the Big Sioux River. But the Big Sioux River was channelized. And now we have these little oxbow lakes. And normally the only source of water they get is from storm drainage, which comes from the Empire Mall, which sadly enough, we see a lot of what, Sandy? A lot of garbage. A lot of trash. The park is absolutely full of trash. So after we dry up a little bit, if anyone's looking for a good uh, project to do, come on out with some uh, garbage bags and feel free to walk around and pick up the trash that comes from the mall parking lot. We would love that. <laughs> it's a lot of a lot of mess out here right now, but um, we'll be cleaned up quickly and be back in order. So don't worry, we're not closed. We are open, and uh, the water's drying up. Um, what do you think, Sandy? Was it kind of a kind of a fun morning? It was a fun morning, and if I could, I'd like to say too. Um, you know, it's kind of a bummer for us to have our park flood. However. Because um, the Oxbow used to be a part of the river, our area here is is actually doing its job. It's a wetland. It is supposed to collect that extra rainwater. Um, all the water that is in our park right now, if we had a completely paved park, where would that water go? Um, could be in, in basements, um, flooding streets. So... It, it's a good thing that, that we are able to, to act as a sponge for that water, even if it is just for a short time. That is so cool. So even when there's a, you know, we're not talking about anything like a hurricane, those poor people who have experienced that, but even when there's a small natural disaster like like flooding, um, there are a lot of lessons to be learned from it, and wetlands are something that we need to learn more about and uh, protect as much as we can to protect habitat for animals and and make the ground a good place. That's correct. All right. Well, thanks, Sandy, and uh, put on your waders, and hopefully you won't have to wear them all the way home. I'll do my best. All right. Thank you. Cool, cool stuff from our friend Thea Miller Ryan, the boss lady out in Sioux Falls at the outdoor campus. If you're out there and ever looking for something to do with you and your little ones, uh, stop by, check out their classes, good stuff. A fire interview from Bison Herd Manager out here in Custer State Park, Chad Kramer. Uh, keeping with the Buffalo Roundup theme, big stuff coming up uh, this week. Uh, we got the Buffalo Roundup, and I'm here with one of my very good friends, and it was uh, friend, Friendship by Fire, uh, Interpretive Program Manager Lydia Austin. Uh, Lydia maybe has the second coolest job in the world, or at least in state government and game fish and park stuff. And she's going to talk to us about the festival activities. But first of all, Interpretive Program Manager, Lydia, what does that mean? What do you do? Well, Chris, um, I work right here at Custer State Park, and as you said, I'm the Interpretive Programs Manager. And in short, that just means I'm in charge of the visitor centers and the interpretive program here. Um, it is a really fun job. I get to work with visitors every day. We put on the programming. Um, 
make sure the visitor centers are operating, come up with new ideas to attract visitors to the park, um, get them excited about the park and the adventures. I also get to dabble in the history side of things and then uh, special events. Um, I get to help coordinate special events like the Roundup. And just your view alone makes me so jealous of you. I'm looking out your window and it's kind of rainy, but the trees are turning and there's critters walking by. and So I'm totally jealous of you. But let's get back to what you personally do during the roundup because people see the buffalo and the horseback and everything else but there's how many other people that are helping volunteers and staff yeah so the roundup is a huge event and we have to coordinate it and as i was kind of kidding around before this i didn't know i get to do this when i i got the job um but on average there's probably about 180 um staff volunteers um that make this operational um just for friday's event and uh we, we kick off with the Arts Festival for that Thursday, Friday, and Saturday as well. So it's coordinating all of them, making sure everyone's fed, making sure we cover everything, making sure visitors have the information, the brochures, the podcasts, the information like that, and um, making sure it's a well-oiled machine. So And yet you still have a smile on your face. Yes. <laughs> Lots of caffeine. <laughs> So what are you doing personally? Like during the roundup this year, what do you get to do? The one year we got to help with the film and we were up at four o'clock in the morning, parked up in the middle of nowhere with our film crew. What are you doing this year? Yeah, so we did get to help with the film that plays the visitor center. And lo and behold, that was the latest I got to sleep in. Now I'm usually up about (laughs) two in the morning. Um, And so what I do is, um, first of all, coordinate the arts festival. So make sure we have the bands, the, the music, the events, the special activities coming in. Then on Roundup Day, um, I coordinate all the staff getting down there. So at 2 in the morning, I'm lining up vehicles, checking and making sure everyone's there, getting all their lunches in their vehicles. And then we take off about 4 that morning down to the parking areas. Then I get the fun job. I get to go play with the media. That's my little break, actually, is to get to go talk with the media, drive them out there with the vehicles. And then after that, I'm either working with the Buffalo, which I will be doing this year, or going back up to Arts Festival. Um, And so this year... I get to help out with the buffalo, and we'll do that till about 3, and then back up to Arts Festival to break down about 6 o'clock and go home about 9 or 10 that night. Awesome. So, yeah. Awesome, awesome. It's, uh, it really is amazing. I mean, I've, I I did a lot of them with tourism. I did a lot of the roundups, and I was on that committee. But to see it from the game fish side, the park side of it, it uh, I, I don't know how you do it, so I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the Arts Festival itself. Give me, it starts Thursday? Yep, Thursday at 10. Thursday at 10. How many vendors are you expecting? This year we're actually expecting quite a few. I think we're up to 120 spots for vendors. And so it's it's getting bigger. Um, and the demand was high for the vendors this year. So that was uh, really fun um, to have. And then we have the big top, like we always do. And so that Thursday, Friday, and Saturday back up, um, we're like 10 to 4 about each day. And we provide vendors where people can go see things made in South Dakota, things made out west, and um, just kind of a great time to go Christmas shopping, personally. That's what I do. And then a lot of good food. Um, The resorts will have their food there, but you have a lot of people bring up things like canned jelly. I tried jalapeno jelly last year, which was really good. Yeah, and um, we do that. But in the middle of all that, we have the big top where we have bands going. Um, Get that kind of south dakota feel where you have the music going you're walking you're eating well um and we have a number of good bands this year we kind of stretched out we have some from sheridan the two tracks from sheridan um greg hansen in the back doors from watertown um some of those good guys are coming out and then um we also have the beer tent again this year that succeeded really well last year and so we got more local breweries out and so then we also set up a backyard game area so we have cornhole 
um, ladders, Jenga. Got a couple of big right Jenga on. sets. So we're going to kind of have that come relax type feel. Um, uh, celebrate that. So. Sure, you guys start the the uh, beer tent when I'm not here. Oh. That's that, that's not my accident. <laughs> that's uh, yeah, that's really good stuff. I've seen this the the festival part of it really grow in the last few years, and that's that's big hat off to you know hats off to you and Kobe and all the staff here because I know that's a, uh, just a beast in itself. Um, talk about how many visitors. What did we have for visitors total last year for the actual roundup? So for roundup day itself, I think we. We're a little under 22,000 visitors for that day alone. Um, and then at the Arts Festival, we average maybe about six or 7,000 a day there. So Friday is pretty busy. Um, and that's where, like we were saying, we have the staff to coordinate that because we have to get everyone parked. Um, so we have all the parkers, all the information folks going out there. We are feeding everybody. We have highway patrol, law enforcement, medical, um, life flight will be there again. And so it is a major event. And... Honestly, I know that I'm in charge of it, but one of my favorite things is that morning. I love Roundup Morning just because you're out on the prairie on Roundup Morning, and that's right. just an experience in itself. But then to watch everybody come, I always get around, it's like Field of Dreams, because yeah. you have so many vehicles coming, and it works. And I think that's what's really amazing is it it works, and everyone's kind of operating the same one. The guests know that it's busy. They usually come with a smile because right. they know that it's going to be busy, and then... Uh, it just works. So right, and and speaking from experience, being part of the staff, and then a couple of years coming and, and taking my family helps to have a little patience when you're in line at yes. four o'clock in the morning, and there's kids maybe sleeping, and there's maybe a couple of kids that are awake, and they're so excited. Little patience, we'll get you parked, we'll get you a spot to see, and it it, it always is definitely worth it. Thank you for your time. I know you're super busy. I only wanted to take five minutes of your time because that's all that was scheduled for you today because you're so busy, but I think I'm in about eight minutes. So I appreciate it. Um, Lydia Austin, we will be having you back because next year is... The Centennial. It's Custer State Park, Centennial, and Game Fishing Parks. Right. Um, but we're going to be 100 years old and have our birthday party. Yeah, so. and you talked about that history a little bit, and, and I know I've seen some of the pictures and stuff that you... Uh, you have and you're you're starting to curate and stuff a little bit and i'm excited to dive into that and start showing the public Great. some of that stuff too so thank you for your time Thanks, i appreciate Chris. it a bunch it's down the